0: And so growing up, I had a next-door neighbor who had a peach tree in his backyard. And so, as you probably suspect, my siblings and I and even my friends, we would go into his backyard and we would pick some of the peaches sometimes. You know, we loved the summers, you know, because that's when it was ripe and that's when it grew. And so we would go and we would pick peaches. And sometimes... There were some good ones. But most times, they were really bad. Like, really bad. I remember one time going and searching. I mean, searching for a good peach. And boy, was I disappointed. (laughs) Because I didn't find one. And y'all, how disappointing would that be as a kid? As you go to a peach tree, your appetite is wet. You're over here tasting it in the back of your taste buds right here. And then you don't get one. <laughs> you see, it was very disappointing. And over time, I just stopped going to it, as well as my siblings. And eventually, the tree died. You know, he stopped growing. He stopped tending to it. And though that was true of the, you know, my past, as we come to this passage, we will see Jesus encounter and curse a fig tree. Now, he didn't encounter and curse a bad tree, but a barren one. And it was served as a symbolic act of judgment. And so, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. If you're able to, please stand for the honor of God's word. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and the disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever the evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, But believe what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. You may be seated. So I don't have a big idea, but I do have three points for us from this passage. And so first, we will see a fruitless tree. Second, we will see a fruitless temple. Third, we will see a fruitful, fruitful faith. So a fruitless tree... A fruitless temple and a fruitful faith. Our first point, a fruitless tree. Look at verses 12 to 14. The next day they went out from Bethany. He was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When they came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And so last week, Jesus, he has triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem. He rode in on a donkey, signifying that he is the Messianic king whom Israel has been anticipating. He went to the temple, silently checked it out, and then he rode out to Bethany. Well, this morning's passage Is what took place the very next day. You see, they are heading back to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus caught a case of the munchies. You see, his stomach was on E. He desires food. And his hunger is a detail that we should not gloss over because it testifies to his humanity. You see, Jesus was and is truly human. He is God the Son incarnate, one person with two natures, truly God and truly man. You see, being truly God, he sustains the universe by the word of his power. He has the authority to forgive sins, and he knows the future. But being truly man, he got hungry thirsty and he slept on boats you see here Jesus he got the munchies and from afar he sees a fig tree with leaves and if you're hungry this is a pleasant sight because there is hope for food seeing that leaves on a fig tree is a sign that there was fruit now what did Jesus do It says, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. So Jesus, he got there. He searched and searched and searched. And he found absolutely nothing. No figs, only leaves. How disappointing. You see, far off from afar... The fig tree appeared fruitful, but up close, it was barren. You see, the perception from afar was way different from the reality up close. It was deceptive and disappointing. And beloved, how often does that happen today? Especially on social media, where you can see from afar, people have this appearance, but then up close... You have a different experience. Are we like that? Appearing to be godly and mature online or at a distance, but not so godly in person. Beloved, this shouldn't be the case for Christians. You see, our online presence and our perception from afar should not appear fruitful and mature but in person there is no fruit. You see, since Christ has saved us and made us new, there should be evidence of his saving work in our lives. You see, there should be fruit from our faith. As the reformer Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It should be accompanied with good works. You see, our faith should bear fruit, fruit of the Holy Spirit, growth in godly character, ongoing repentance of sin, a continual trust in Christ, and obedience to him by his grace. In our passage, we see that the fig tree is barren. And it says, why? Why? It says, for it was not the season for figs. And look how Jesus responded in verse 14. He said to him, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and the disciples heard it. You see, Jesus, he cursed the barren fig tree. And y'all take note that this was only, this was Jesus' only mighty act of destruction. Now at face value, you may read this and wonder, Jesus, are you overreacting? Was this an abuse of his authority? You may have these questions. Some do. And I would say not at all. You see, the way the fig tree grows is first, there are unripe figs that are edible. They're not as good as ripe figs, but they appear first. And then afterwards come leaves. And then later the figs become ripe. So when it says that it was not the season for figs, it's referring to the figs being ripe. So because Jesus saw the leaves, there was an expectation that there would be at least unripe figs. But there was none. Only leaves. So therefore he condemned it for appearing fruitful but being barren. And this curse, it points beyond itself, and we will see that later. And one of the reasons why I say it points beyond itself, because in the Old Testament, Israel is likened to a fig tree. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, and Hosea chapter 9, verse 16 speaks to this reality: that Israel is likened to a fig tree. And as we study this. As we study Jesus cursing a fig tree, it may make some of us be a little bit uncomfortable because we haven't seen Jesus curse anything in Mark's gospel. You see, through, through the gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus serve. We've seen him show compassion, but we've never seen him curse anything, which can lead one to think that Jesus is only compassionate, which he is compassionate and merciful But those aren't his only attributes. He's also righteous, and so he judges justly. Beloved, he is merciful to heal, to serve and save those who deserve his wrath. But he's also just to condemn the guilty. In fact, his mercy is even sweeter when it's set against the backdrop of his righteousness and justice. And here we see Jesus, his authority over nature, the one who spoke the fig tree into existence, who designed its process of production, has authority to curse it with his words, and it dies. You see, such scene, such sight is sobering. And I say that because if he condemned a barren fig tree, what will he do to superficial professing Christians? Those who profess Christ, but don't actually follow him. He makes it known in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 on down. And he says, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says that you will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to say that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of our Father in heaven. He says that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, superficial professing Christians will be judged. And the reason is because their faith was not truly in Jesus, only by confession, but they did not possess saving faith. They were relying upon their own works. You see, knowing Christ should result in a transformed life by his grace. There should be good fruit. If one claims to know Christ, but lives in sin and promotes it and there is no repentance, they may be superficial professing Christians. And if so, judgment awaits them unless they actually repent and trust in Christ. And friends, if you think this describes you, I'll say, know that there is hope for you. You can repent Today, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved by his grace. I would encourage you to do so. You see, beloved, since Christ has saved us, there should be fruit in accordance with our profession of faith in him. God has made us new creations in Christ, which should be evident in how we live and in our repentance when we sin against him. And we don't do this to be saved, but we do this because Christ has saved us. You see, the grace that saves us is the same grace that trains us to grow more into the conformity of Christ-likeness. And so, beloved, may we bear fruit. And so we've seen a fruitless tree, and now let's look at a fruitless temple. Look at verses 15 to 17. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, Jesus and his disciples, they re-entered Jerusalem, And he goes straight into the temple. The temple was central for Israel's religious life. It was a place where they would approach God, seeing that his presence was in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could enter that place once a year. You see, worship would take place at the temple. There would be teaching and prayers and sacrifices. And in this temple, there were four sections the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel, and the Holy of Holies. You see, Jesus, he entered the court of the Gentiles, and this time he's not checking things out, but cleaning house. You see, he has righteous indignation over what he sees and doesn't see. You see, he should be seeing Gentiles praying. He should be hearing them cry out to God instead he sees a commercial market he hears coins and he hears animals animal sounds making sounds you see worship has been replaced with a market if the expectation is worship the reality is a corner store now let's be clear The problem is not that they're selling unblemished animals for sacrifices. The problem is where they're selling these animals, where it's taking place, the temple. You see, such sight provoked Jesus to righteous anger because God isn't being revered. It says that he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He threw out vendors and customers like Uncle Phil throwing out jazz from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He flipped tables and benches of money changers. Jesus cleared it out so that the temple can be used for its intended purposes. Beloved, his actions revealed his zeal for God. You see, Jesus loves the Father with his whole heart and is therefore consumed with a passionate zeal for the reverence of God's name and obedience to his commands. You see, you're passionate about whatever you really love. Our zeal reveals what we truly love. Beloved, what are you zealous about? The Lord, or being liked, your income, Your image at work? You see, this question, it convicted me as I studied the passage. Because lately, if I'm honest, I've been more zealous about being in shape and looking fit than glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. More zealous about bodily training than training myself in godliness. I was convicted and I had to repent. What about you? What are you zealous about? This would be good to discuss with other members and pray for one another that we will solely be zealous for the things of the Lord. That our zeal for him will not be rivaled or surpassed by any other zeal. Now, it's important for us to know that Jesus is not blowing a fuse. This wasn't an overreaction. This was a righteous response of him because the temple was being abused and misused. And know that though Jesus displayed righteous anger, he never sinned. He never sinned. He is the one who is without sin and his anger was never ungodly. It was never mingled with unrighteousness. Not even for a millisecond. And this is the case because he is God. You see, beloved, God gets angry. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, when he revealed his goodness, one of the things that he said about himself is that he is slow to anger. And when God gets angry, he never sins in his anger, for he is without sin. As we see with Jesus. And though we see here, we see Jesus having righteous anger. This should not be the summation of his ministry. You see, all four Gospels record this scene insinuating that's very important. Yet it only happened once, meaning his righteous anger shouldn't be the phrase used to summarize his ministry. You see, nowadays, more Christians say we need to express righteous indignation more often. We see sin running rampant, injustice prevailing, corrupt world leaders, the denial of institutional racism and police brutality and more. Such wickedness should provoke righteous anger among Christians, and we should pray for such wickedness to cease and for justice to prevail But we need to be on guard against being angry Christians and justifying it with the excuse of righteous anger. You see, if Jesus flipping tables is your only life verse in the Gospels, then, friends, you need to reread the Gospels. Because, yes, Jesus showed righteous anger. But he also showed compassion, forgiveness, love, and mercy. Is your life also marked by these attributes? Because if not, then are we really pursuing a life of Christ-likeness? That is not to say that we shouldn't have righteous anger in response to wickedness. Or that we shouldn't seek justice. Because we should. Scripture makes known, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. James chapter 1, verse 19 says that we should be slow to anger. So may we obey Scripture. And just as Jesus' life wasn't characterized by anger, neither should ours be. Look at verse 17. It says, He was teaching them, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, Jesus was angry because the practices in the temple were contrary to God's purposes for the temple. And he appealed to Scripture. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which spoke of God's purposes of foreigners joining themselves to the Lord and being brought into the house of prayer. And the religious leaders knew this verse. Yet they violated God's desire for the temple And said that they, Jesus said that they have made it a den of thieves, alluding to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, which was this morning's scripture reading. You see, they are far off from the temple's intended purpose. They've robbed the Gentiles the opportunity to worship, prohibiting them from praying and permitting a market instead. And their actions revealed their insincere devotion to God. They professed to love God, yet they oversaw the violation of his temple. You see, they were godly in speech, but ungodly in deeds. Their practices were contrary to God's purposes. And beloved, what about us? Now, we don't worship at a temple because Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the temple and the sacrifices. We approach God through Christ. We gather in Jesus' name, and our corporate gathering matters to God. You see, when we gather, we should be exalting God and seeking to edify one another, and it should result in the evangelization of those who don't know Christ. You see, Scripture prescribes what we should do in our gatherings. We should read God's word. We should preach the word. We should pray and sing and participate in the ordinances. Beloved, do we do these things? Or are our practices contrary to God's purposes and commands? You see, sadly, today some gatherings claim to be churches, but they aren't. And when they gather, they preach a false gospel, preach the local news. Preach conspiracy theories, but they don't preach Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. And as sad as that is, do not think for one second that we are above those sins, because we can begin to drift off and do the very same thing if we're not careful. Now, one may wonder well, how are we to avoid this? We pray. And we need to be tethered to Scripture, studying and knowing what God commands in our gatherings, and being committed to preaching Scripture alone. Beloved, when whoever preaches, may we be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, daily examining the Scriptures to see if the Word is being rightly taught. That is how we avoid being like those who aren't churches but claim the name to be churches. Think at verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. You see, they rightly interpreted Jesus' rebuke to be against them. They're responsible because they oversaw it. And how did they respond? They began plotting on how to kill him. You see, in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they begin plotting Jesus' death. And now we see the chief priests and the scribes scheming his death, plotting their plan of attack like an army general, trying to figure out how they're going to kill Jesus. And, y'all, this is evidence of a hard heart. They've opposed and rejected Jesus, and now they're plotting his death. And these are religious leaders. They know the law, yet they're willing to break it that they may put Jesus to death. The question is, what has Jesus done? Nothing but rebuke them and expose their hypocrisy. See, this is similar to how during the civil rights era, unfortunately, many white Christians wanted Dr. King killed Because he opposed governing authorities on all levels, calling out America for its racial discrimination, for its injustice, hate crimes, and oppression against black people. You see, as King did that, he and his family constantly received death threats. And it led to him being assassinated by James Earl Ray here in Memphis, Tennessee. You see, he called them out. And they wanted to take him out. And that's what we see in this passage. And the thing is about Jesus, he knew it. He predicted this in chapter 8, verse 31, and in chapter 10, verse 32, as he predicted his death. He said that they will, the, the religious leaders will hand him over, that they will condemn him, and he'll be nailed to the cross. Well, they didn't know is that that would be the very way that Jesus saves sinners from God's judgment as he died on the cross for our sins and then resurrecting from the grave. You see, these religious leaders, they responded to Jesus' rebuke with a resolve to kill him. And their response reveals their hard hearts. And before we begin to look down on them, We must ask ourselves, do we respond similarly when we're rebuked and called out on sin? Now, preferably, we don't plot to kill anyone who calls us out, like for real. But how do you respond when you're rebuked for your sin? Is there repentance or do you want to remove them from your life? Is there repentance or is there resistance? Our response is telling. It's some kind of fruit, which is why we should be praying for soft hearts. That if sin is exposed by members, that we have humble and contrite hearts that we would turn away from it out of a love for our Savior. Look at verse 19. When evening came, they were going out of the city. And so once again, Jesus and his disciples, they roll out of Jerusalem, and then they go to Bethany. Look at verse 20 and 21. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So again, they're traveling to Jerusalem. The disciples notice that the fig tree that Jesus cursed has withered. The tree is dead, dead, dead. (laughs) Jesus cursed it yesterday, and it was found dead the next day. No one will ever eat fruit from this tree again, just as Jesus said. You see, it may now be good for firewood, but it ain't good for food. And the cursing of the tree, I said earlier, serves as a sign of judgment that will come upon Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This is the connection, which is why I believe the cursed tree is mentioned again right after Jesus' actions in the temple. You see, God's judgment will fall upon Jerusalem and the temple for their rebellion and rejection of Christ. As I said earlier, Scripture likens Israel to a fig tree. Hosea chapter 9 verse 16 says, Ephraim is struck down. Their roots are withered. They cannot bear fruit. Even if they bear children, I will kill the precious offspring of their wombs. You see, God will judge Jerusalem and destroy the temple as Jesus cursed the fig tree. And it happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans came and besieged the city and destroyed the temple. You see, through the coming of Jesus, God was ending the old covenant and the sacrificial system. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and the sacrificial system. See, through Jesus' advent, God was present and dwelling with his people because Jesus is God in human flesh. And the sacrifices that took place in the temple ultimately pointed to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. That when he died, he effectually atoned for our sins, for all who trusted in him. And Jesus, he has inaugurated the new covenant. covenant. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, all who place their faith in Christ, our sins are completely forgiven. We have peace with God through Christ. We have been born again by God's Spirit, which resulted in us repenting and trusting in him. And we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So now we, believing Jews and Gentiles, we can approach God, not through the temple, but through Jesus Christ, our Savior and High Priest. And not only that, we who are in Christ, we will place our faith in Him. We are physical temples of God's Holy Spirit. His Spirit dwells within us, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and the church is God's holy temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2. You see, we've been delivered and made new. And now by God's grace, we can and should bear good fruit for God's glory. We're to grow in conformity to the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we behold him. You see, this temple was fruitless. But now in Christ the church, God's holy temple, we are to be fruitful. We love Jesus and we are to be zealous for the things of the Lord. So if you're not a Christian, I am glad that you are here. Friends, I want you to know that God is righteous and he will judge. As Jesus cursed a tree, as he judged the temple in Jerusalem, as we see in A.D. 70. And he has appointed a day where he will judge all people. The only way that you can flee the wrath to come is by finding refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. He died for sins and resurrected. He is an all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior. Friends, I would implore you to place your hope and trust in him today. Turn from your sin and trust in him. If you want to talk more with anyone, you can talk with any of our members after service. We love to have these kind of conversations. And so, what we see now is the church is God's holy temple. And we are to bear fruit for God. Which brings us to our final point, a fruitful faith. Look at verses 21 and 22. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And so a fruitful faith. Now, when I say a fruitful faith, I want to be clear that what I'm getting at is a genuine faith that bears fruit. And so in verse 21, Peter tells Jesus that the tree is withered. Verse 22, Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity for all of the disciples. Now, he doesn't make the connection to the temple, but instead he instructs them on faith and prayer. You see here, Jesus commanded them to have faith in God. You see, a faith that bears fruit is a faith that has God as its object. This is total trust in the totally trustworthy one. Not us, but in God. You see, the God who in his love sent his son to save us, the very God who is all-powerful. The God who spoke creation into existence. The God who levels mountains and brings the the dead to life. Our faith should be in him. And then he says, verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. You see, we're to have total faith in God, and we are to not doubt but trust him to do the impossible. When he talks about moving this mountain, this is hyperbole. He ain't saying that as we believe, a a literal mountain is going to be moved. But what he's getting at is the fact that God has the power to do the impossible in response to our faith in him. You see, we ain't moving mountains on our own. Go give it a try if you think I'm lying. But God has the authority, the power, the one who created them can move them. You see, God has the power to do the very things that we can't do. He says that God is the God of all flesh, and he says that, is there anything too hard for me? Now, how do we do this? Jesus makes known that we do it in praying. That's why it goes on in verse 24. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You see, Jesus promises that if we ask in faith, we will receive it. Beloved, what a great motivation to pray. Jesus is saying if you ask in faith and believe, you will receive. Now we should take this At face value and literally believe what he is saying and be exhorted to pray. Now, sadly, some false teachers have misinterpreted this verse, saying that Jesus is promising us prosperity, health, wealth, and a long life if we pray without doubting. Which I would say they are absolutely wrong. Now, in response to this, some Christians can stay away from this verse and only preach what it doesn't mean, to which I will say that is an overcorrection. You see, I believe that we should take Jesus at his word and be led to pray in faith about many things. Now, Jesus is not promising prosperity. He's not insinuating that we can use God as a genie as long as we don't doubt. Nor is Jesus saying that God will give us absolutely everything we ask God in faith. You see, though he does promise that God will answer favorably some of the prayers that we pray in faith, if it's consistent with his will. Now, one may wonder, well, why do I say this? I say this because this verse isn't the only thing that God says about prayer. And we always want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So see this verse in light of many other verses that God says about prayer. Know that, one, motives matter. James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because we ask for it with selfish motives. God knows our motives. And as we pray and ask for things, our goal should be that God be glorified. This is what Jesus got at in John chapter 14, verse 13. You see, our desire should ultimately be for God's will to be done. Didn't Jesus teach us this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? And Jesus himself modeled this in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, three times Jesus prayed asking for the Father to remove this cup for him, from him. And he concluded every prayer with, Not my will, but your will be done. And it was God's will for Jesus to drink the cup. And Paul's example, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. Three times Paul asked for the thorn to be removed from his side. And the Lord responded with, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, God got the glory. Not by removing the thorn, but by strengthening the, the Apostle Paul. And No, Matthew 7, God is a good father. He knows what is good for us. And he will only do what is for our good. So if he says no, he's being good to us and fulfilling his purpose for us. You see, oftentimes we read this verse and only focus on prayers that God hasn't answered favorably. We only dwell on the things that he haven't given us. We never think about the prayers that we've prayed in faith and God favorably answered in his timing. Those favorable prayers proves that what Jesus says is true. And it should lead us to pray all the more. You see, beloved, we should be praying about everything in faith. What are things that we can be praying for? man? We can be begging God for the salvation of non-Christians. We can be praying for more healthy churches to be planted around the world. Beloved, if you're single, you can be praying if you desire marriage. Pray for the Lord to bring about marriage, for God to bring you a godly spouse. If you're married and you desire children, Or if you have children and want more children, pray about these things. If you're suffering, pray in faith, asking for God to heal you. If you are looking for employment, or if you want a new job, pray and ask God for a new job. We are to be praying about everything and ultimately trusting God in all things knowing that he is being good to us however he answers our prayers. You see, a faith that bears fruit is a faith that's in God alone, that trusts him, that prays to him and submits to his will in all things. And a fruitful faith is also a faith that forgives people. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. You see, we must forgive those who have wronged us. As Christ followers, our heart posture should be a willingness to forgive and desiring reconciliation when sinned against. We don't hold grudges against those who have sinned against us. You see, we are to remember that we have been forgiven. We forgive because we know that we have done way worse to God, and he has forgiven us of our sins when we repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. And since we are forgiven, who are we to withhold forgiveness? You see, when struggling to forgive, could it be that we have forgotten how much we have been forgiven? You see, beloved, a faith that trusts in God is a faith that seeks to reflect God. In Christ, God has forgiven us of our sins, and so we are to imitate him and forgive others as we have been forgiven. Now, we don't forgive to merit God's forgiveness. It's not achieved, but it's granted through faith in Christ. It is received by faith. We forgive because it is a fruit of faith as we have been forgiven. And as we do so, God continues to forgive our wrongdoings. Beloved, did you notice that Jesus promises his followers forgiveness from God the Father? How is it that Jesus can make this promise? Well, it's because he is God. And how come God can continue to forgive us our sins? Well, it's because of the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. You see, his death satisfied God's holy and righteous wrath for all of our sins. Every last one of them have been atoned for. We are completely forgiven. As we sung earlier, it was finished upon that cross. First John says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, meaning God's wrath has been satisfied for every last sin of all who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we are forgiven. And as we are forgiven, may we continue to forgive others who have sinned against us. You see, beloved, since our faith is in Christ By God's grace, there should be fruit, growth in godliness, obedience to him by his grace, a continual trust in him, praying and submitting to his will, and forgiving as we have been forgiven. We're to do this all the way, all the day, until we see our Savior, until Christ returns. Beloved, may this be true of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the forgiveness that is in your Son. We praise you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. That we've, by your grace, you've brought the dead to life, no longer having dead works no longer having hearts of stone, but being made new by your grace, bearing good fruit for your glory. God, we pray that that would be true of MBC, that we would bear good fruit, growing in godliness, reflecting the holiness of your Son, being his holy temple as your people, and awaiting the day When Christ returns, we will be with our Savior for all of eternity. It's in Jesus' name, amen.